Our New Testament reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 22. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is the hope that he has called you to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Forever. I love that phrase, the grass withers and the flowers fade. A few Sunday mornings ago, um, I was um, bothered by the squirrels digging up my backyard. We paid for True Green to come and fertilize and reseed, and the grass is really starting to look good. And I really want that springtime lush green yard, but the squirrels are literally digging hundreds and hundreds of holes. And so I was just, it was about to ruin my Sunday, and I was really uptight, and Maribel called me. She said, come here, sit down next to me. She grabbed me, and she put her my head on her shoulder, and she said, you know, hon, the grass withers and the flowers fade, <laughs> but the word of the Lord stands forever. <laughs> well, it's Vision Sunday, and um, every year right around this time, we talk about vision for the coming year, and um, in previous years, we've done vision, provision, the same Sunday. We've talked a little bit about vision and what it's going to take for us and how we can support that vision in the coming year, and we sort of talk about pledge, pledging, and all, all that kind of stuff. This year, we're breaking it up in two different Sundays. So this Sunday, we're talking about uh, vision. And, you know, it's a festive time of year. There's, we're right on the cusp of Thanksgiving, and right after that, we start the Advent season. And, uh, you know, we, we run the risk, I think, of being so busy this time of year that we don't experience um, the real meaning and joy of these holidays. Thanksgiving is a wonderful time, so is Advent and Christmas. And so it's good for us to slow down. It's good for us to to um, not be swept up and caught up in the busyness and chaos of it all. And so it's good for us right before things get really busy and crazy to talk about um, our vision, sort of a new vision for the coming year and the hope and the possibilities of what, of what God can do with us as a church. Um, and so... Um, in March of this year, the session took a planning retreat. So we wanted to sort of get ahead of the game and think about 2022. And so early this year, we had a planning retreat where we came together and we wanted to ask some serious questions like, um, who are we as a church? 
What do we value? Um, who do we want to be as a church? And how is God calling us in our context to be faithful? And it may not look the same for every church. A different church may have a different calling for their context. And so we wanted to talk about those things and ask those questions. And it was the first time we really did a um, sort of strategic planning that far in advance for the coming year. So I'm really proud of the fact that we did that. And um, we talked about a lot of things and identified sort of things we're good at as a church, things we're not so good at as a church, and things that it's realistic for us to pursue and recognizing that, you know, not every church can do everything, but it was good for us. And um, I, I suppose and suspect that each year as we do this, we'll get better and better at it to the point where we might be able to articulate, you know, like a five-year plan. Um, people value that in, in our context. I get that. And so, um, but one of the things we wanted to sort of emphasize is just taking baby steps toward that goal and toward those goals of being more and more strategic and intentional in implementing vision as a church and using the gifts and resources God has given us. And by that, I mean the gifts, the sort of talents that we all have as individual people together as a body. And the resources is, you know, the money we have as a church. Um, using those things in a way that glorify God, that's faithful, that stewards uh, those things to be able to uh, reach the lost, to proclaim the gospel, and to serve God's kingdom purposes for his glory. And it all starts with vision. So this Sunday um, is Vision Sunday. Now, I don't want to disappoint anyone who is expecting that today we're going to go through a line-by-line -line explanation of every single thing we plan to do in the coming year. Actually, next Sunday, we'll get a little bit more of that when we talk about provision. We'll talk about things we've allocated um, or, or so how, sort of how we've allocated our budgetary vision, because that's part of the vision is we have a visionary budget, and we're, we'll talk next week about the things we want to accomplish but this morning, I want to take a look at a text of scripture that will help us conceptualize vision biblically and theologically by looking at the book of Nehemiah. And I want us to be thinking about these three points as we move through our message this morning. Vision begins with a need, number one. Vision grows in prayer and vision mobilizes the church. Whether or not you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah is part of the historical books in the Bible, and it recounts the story of a man who was born to Jewish parents in Persia during the exile from Jerusalem. So some of you may be familiar with the fact that the Babylonians in 586 BC destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and the people of God were marched off into Babylon, and decades later, Babylon, the empire, the Babylonian empire, was conquered by the Persian empire. And Nehemiah is a cupbearer in Persia for the king himself, and a cupbearer was an honored 
an influential position. Uh, it may not sound like it, but essentially think of someone who's, who stands right next to the king. That's your job. And you probably chat with the king. And it's not just to serve the king his drink when he sits down to eat, but I would imagine throughout the day, if you're a king sitting on your throne and people are coming before you and you're judging matters, you get thirsty. And the person next to you, well, the cupbearer's job is to, if the king ever suspects the cup is poison, it's, hey, take a sip of that. That's, it's an important job, a really important job. And so the cupbearer was someone who was trusted by the king because it was someone who would be willing to die for the king. And so Nehemiah, who is an Israelite, several generations after the exile, is very, very close to this pagan Persian king. And you may be familiar with the story, but decades earlier, Cyrus the Persian king let about 40-ish thousand Jews go back to Jerusalem. And some of them, over time, traveled back to Persia, and Nehemiah got word of the condition of Jerusalem. Hey, what is Jerusalem like? Now, now think for a moment, if you will, Nehemiah is someone, he's an Israelite, but he's not born in Israel. It's his ancestral homeland, and he probably has never been there. And so as he reads the books of the prophets and the stories and the book of the law and Moses and the Psalms, he, is, he, has, he shares a collective nostalgia about his ancestral homeland. Is that, the, is that true for any of you here? Maybe some of you are of Irish descent or German descent, and, and maybe there are places, you know, or African descent or wherever, and there are places that you've heard of but never been to, and you have sort of like a, you know, sort of a nostalgia, but you've never been there. You've only read about it. Well, that was Nehemiah's case. And so he had this longing, and he read in the books, you know, read in the, the Hebrew scriptures, his homeland, and all the great things that were done in Jerusalem and the temple. And word gets back to him about the condition of the holy city. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was at Susa, the citadel. This is Nehemiah talking. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is the vision begins with a need or a problem. Nehemiah hears about this problem in Jerusalem. The holy city of God, the people are troubled and they're ashamed. And the wall of Jerusalem, this great city of God, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, <clears throat> the modern city of Jerusalem today is quite large, but the ancient city of Jerusalem was about uh, two miles around. I don't know if we'd call it two square miles, but it was shaped sort of like a spoon. 
And it was, it was wide at the bottom and narrow at the top. And that's not very large, but for an ancient city, um, it was significant. And the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. My grandfather's from Syria. He came to this country when he was only five years old in 1905 with his family, my great-grandfather. And I've never been to Syria, but I've learned a little bit about Syria. And there are some beautiful, amazing cities like Aleppo and Damascus that have been continually occupied for thousands of years. And my heart broke a few years ago to find out that the civil war in Syria a few years ago had utterly destroyed some of the most beautiful places in the world. If you've never been to the Middle East, you may not realize, but some of the Middle East is absolutely gorgeous. It's on par with Paris and Vienna. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful historic places that were destroyed by the civil war. And it utterly broke my heart. It's, I've never been there, but it's my ancestral homeland on my father's side. And so you can imagine the heartbreak that Nehemiah has when he hears about this, hears that this beloved city that he's probably heard of his whole life, he's read of in the Hebrew scriptures, is in utter ruins, desolated. And there are people there, but they're not thriving. There are Jews there, but they're not thriving. They're troubled and they're living in shame. And when Nehemiah heard of the condition of his ancestral homeland, it says that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And it wasn't just cosmetic. It wasn't just like he grieved over the fact that the place didn't look pretty. In the ancient world, a city without walls had no dignity. Now, we don't, we don't need walls around our city today. But in the ancient world, if you can think about the condition of the ancient world with raiding armies and other people coming to sort of plunder your village or your city, you had to have walls. And you didn't even take a place seriously if it didn't have walls. And that is in the mind and the heart of Nehemiah that God's beloved city is utterly defenseless. And it grieves him. God's beloved city had no dignity at the time. And that need burdened Nehemiah's heart. And the burden was the walls of Jerusalem must be prepared. That's the need. This is where the vision starts to sort of take shape, is we have to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. My question for us this morning is, what are the needs that we see? Let's take a moment. Think about the world you live in. Think about your community, your city, your nation. And ask the question, what is going on around us right now that should break our heart like Nehemiah? Well, I'll name a couple of needs. There are lost people. And not just the classic people who have never known or heard of Jesus or the gospel, but right now, there is a great falling away from the faith in our nation. Now, I don't want to paint it all bleak because there are certain parts of the world where the church and the gospel is growing exponentially. But here in our sort of Western, enlightened culture, uh, we think we're too clever for the gospel. And people even in churches are falling away from the faith. 
People are leaving the church in droves right now. Right now it's happening, right now. Um, and the pandemic actually has only sped up the process. Uh, the lockdown, you know, had us all at home for a couple months. And a lot of us felt like, hey, after the lockdown eases, people will start coming back to church. Uh, but it hasn't happened broadly. Um, hundreds of thousands of people have not come back to church. And it's created a public health crisis. You think, well, isn't the pandemic a health crisis? Well, sure. But I want to proffer to you this morning some other information that maybe will get you thinking a little differently. People who attend church regularly have a 33% reduced risk of death. This is a Harvard study. This isn't like something we did. 84% reduced risk of suicide for people who regularly attend church. 29% reduced risk of depression. 50% reduced risk of divorce for people who regularly attend church. 68% reduced risks, risk of deaths of despair for women. And 33% reduced risks of death of despair for men. 33% reduced risk of adolescent illegal drug use for parents with their children who regularly attend church. And a 12% reduced risk of adolescent depression. Those things are all true. I didn't need that study to prove that to me. I wasn't surprised by that. I could have told you that it's good for people to go to church because it's a community in which Jesus has created accountability and growth, forgiveness, love, relational trust, and all of those things. But the statistics only back it up. And it's important for us because for whatever reason people are leaving the church, and again, the pandemic only sped the process up, we lose something, people are losing something, and it is a national public health crisis. It's not just spiritual, it's a spiritual crisis, but it's also a public health crisis. So expect to see, we're talking about a need now, we're talking about a vision that identifies a problem. Expect to see if this trend continues, suicide rates go up, divorces going up, illegal illicit drug use go up, I mean, you name it. And that should trouble us. I hope you're troubled. I hope you, you have sort of like a pit in, in your stomach over it. Nehemiah was deeply troubled. What are some other needs? Well, families are in trouble. Families are confused right now. Christian families are confused. The redefinition of gender and sexuality has really wreaked havoc, even with Christian families. People don't know how to talk about these issues. They don't know how to handle these issues as they come up in their own home. And it's happening in Christian families. I've got a buddy who's a pastor not far from here. He's got three, three 12 and 13 year olds in his church who are confused about their gender and their families don't know what to do. These are Christian families. They're they know what the Bible says, but they're confused about how to talk about it, how to approach it, how to deal with it. And a lot of this confusion is being pushed at the highest level of our society. 
And I have to be honest with you, it feels like this agenda being pushed will not stop until it utterly obliterates the nuclear family. It is a devilish plot. So families are in trouble. That's another need. And maybe the biggest need is that there is a famine of the word of God right now. And that's ironic because it's ubiquitous. It's available everywhere. But there, we have introduced, our society has introduced into, you know, the bowl a million distractions. And so the power of the word of God, which is available everywhere, has been sort of diluted by countless and endless distractions. Even churches are shrinking back from the duty to preach and proclaim the truth of Holy Scripture. We just assume, I think, well, that's, yeah, that's what churches do. And no, it's not. Faithful preaching of the word of God is is not just something that all churches do. There is this pressure, societal pressure right now, to shrink back from the duty to proclaim God's unadulterated truth. And I think we see it in our culture. What's in vogue right now is man-made psychology and solutions to everything, including spiritual problems. And as a result, mature and equipped disciples are in short supply. There are a lot of people who identify as Christians, but the idea of mature and equipped disciples of Christ are in short supply right now. Those are just some things, there's more. Those are just some things that need a spirit-empowered church to take up the mantle and speak into powerfully. So vision begins with a need. The second thing I want us to see is that vision grows in prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant for the people of Israel confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Nehemiah prays. He sees the need, it creates a vision, and the first thing he goes about to do is to pray. It was his first response. And I'll tell you why prayer was the first move and is always the first move when we talk about vision because we have to reconcile how we ourselves have contributed to the problem. Nehemiah knew when he looked at, when he knew about Jerusalem and he knew that he was born into captivity in Persia, that those, those events just didn't come about by happenstance, that the children of Israel had contributed to the situation through their rebellion against God and their disobedience. You do not, as a nation, sort of jettison the commands of God and think nothing's going to happen. Right? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that's happened here, and so it's good for us, it's need, needful for us to pray. There was a need for Nehemiah to deal with the past before he could move forward. But Nehemiah didn't stay there. He started to reflect on the promises of God. And this is what he says, remember the word of promise to your servant Moses to gather your people again. 
He reminds God of God's promise to his people that if they obeyed, that God would gather them back in the land again. For us, it means being reminded and reminding God of the gospel promises to save the lost and not let the gates of hell prevail against the church. We have the promises in scripture, but our, our response shouldn't be passive. We shouldn't say, well, the church will be all right. God always accomplishes his sovereign will through the means of human spirit-empowered agency. I hope that makes sense. God always accomplishes his sovereign will, not through passive people, but through the means of spirit-empowered human agency. In other words, if God is going to fight back the gates of hell through the church, it takes all of our energy and prayer and faith. It takes that. God uses that. He uses our, the, the pit in our stomach. God uses all those things to get us active, involved, to have a burden for the lost, to have a burden for what's happening in our culture around us. And I'm an optimist. I mean, I'm, I'm a total optimist. But it doesn't mean we sit back and we say, you know, it'll all work out. God wants to use that, the trouble in our hearts to get us praying, to get us confessing. And by the end of Nehemiah's prayer, he asks for success. He says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Nehemiah sees a need. It creates a vision. The walls need to be rebuilt, and he prays. And he prays, and when he prays, he repents, and then he asks God for success. You know, it's, it's okay for us to say, God, make us successful. Because the thing we're doing is not about us, but it's about Jesus. It's about God's kingdom. It's about souls knowing Christ and being saved from a certain hell certain damnation, which awaits all those who don't repent and trust in Christ. If that's not the case, what are we doing, right? If universalism is real and we're all just kind of somehow get there because all roads lead to God, hey, bye, I'll go do something else. And you can go do something else. <laughs> but God has called us to faithfulness because we know that heaven and hell is real. Those things are real. God is real. Satan is real. The powers of darkness are real. And God invites us in and calls us in as his people to fight and to defend the faith, even as the culture around us seems to be disintegrating. And that's what's happening right now. Our culture is tearing itself apart. Because you cannot jettison the foundation of any society, right? the things, the building blocks that God has given us, the family, for us, the word of God, and think there won't be consequences. And we're witnessing that right now. I don't, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm trying to help you and invite you into a vision that God is giving us as a church. This is what Nehemiah is really asking for in this prayer. 
What Nehemiah is doing is he's asking God to take the circumstances around him and turn them into opportunities. Because we could look at everything around us and just give up or be overwhelmed. And instead, Nehemiah says, Lord, these, these are the circumstances, but turn them into opportunities. We need to pray that because it's going to require more than a business plan to succeed. It takes supernatural power to defeat the dark powers around us, and that's what we need. We need supernatural power. We need the power of God enabling us to do this work. Our prayer should be, Lord, take what looks negative on the surface and make it into an opportunity for the kingdom and for your glory. Now, I'll be honest with you, in our retreat planning session in March, we did not figure out all the minute details of exactly how that's gonna happen, but we came together by faith and you know, we, we had whiteboards and we had you know, columns and you know, we had eraser markers and we, were, we had all these different, you know, we were identifying who we are, what we need to accomplish, what God wants to do in us, what is feasible, what isn't feasible, but our hearts were lifted up in the trust and confidence that God can do it. And you have to believe that God can do that. That God can change things, that God can use us, you and I, to make a change, to make a difference in our culture. And I realize that's sort of like cliched talking, like, we're gonna make a difference. But I mean, like, God has given us a guarantee of success in the gospel. The Great Commission, when Jesus tells his disciples to go out and make disciples and baptize people and teach them the things that he has commanded, he gives what I believe is a guarantee of success at the very end. He says, and lo, I am with you always unto the very end of the age, which is to say, I'll be with you in this endeavor. As you defend the gospel, as you stand for truth, as you stand for the word of God, I'll be with you in this endeavor. I'll be with you in this task. My spirit will go with you. When you make up in your mind to proclaim what is true, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the name of Christ, he's with us. You're not alone. And you may feel like the only person who's standing for what's right, but God is with us, and God promises to be with us. That's part of the promise of the Great Commission. Go, baptize, teach, disciple, but I'm with you. Know that I'm with you. And so we have the confidence that God is with us. So the vision starts with a need. We know the need. We know what's going on around us. We know the need. It grows in prayer. We're praying right now. Your session's been praying. And we want to invite you in also to pray with us. And some of you are not. Some of you are praying people. Some of you aren't. I don't know who. But, you know, prayer is, is tough. But if we really want to see things change around us, it starts with prayer. It grows in prayer. Prayer is the secret weapon of the church. It's the secret weapon of Christians. It is the one thing we do that is utterly subversive to the wicked culture around us. I know it's not like politically correct to say that. I just called our culture wicked. Maybe there's a better way to talk about it. But like, not, not everything about our culture is wicked. Some things about our culture is great. 
But there are forces and elements in the culture that are utterly wicked. Nehemiah prays. Here's what God does in answer to prayer when we start to pray. God responds by giving us a picture to pursue, a vision of how he can use us to meet the needs of the culture. So one of the things I don't want to do is I don't want to fire up your antagonism against the culture. I want us, and God wants us, to see the need in our culture. People in our culture who are non-churched are hurting. We're hurting. But the people around us are hurting. And they're looking for answers in everything and anything. And we know that the gospel is the answer. And what God does in answer to our prayer is give us a vision of how the gospel can change things. The church is not part of the problem. There is an element of our culture telling us that, which is why people are leaving the church. The church has become guilty for every cultural woe. You see it in movies, you see it in in entertainment, you see it in novels. The church has become public enemy number one. And, but the church is really part of the solution to our culture's needs. Because the church and its ministries of word and sacrament and fellowship and prayer mediates God's grace. Those statistics I read earlier are not fabricated out of thin air. There is a life-giving power to the community that Jesus created in his church that nothing in the world can replicate. If you don't believe that, your witness doesn't have much power. If you don't actually believe that the community of Jesus, his church, is fundamentally unique in the entire planet, in the entire world, how can you proclaim the truth? You have to believe that. And I do believe it, or I wouldn't be up here talking about it. Jesus prescribed a system of escalating accountability for his followers a strategy that can help people live well with one another. And Christians as a community are called to help each other repent and change and reconcile. And it's in the gospel community, the vision of the gospel, the vision of scripture, the vision of Jesus, where people from different backgrounds and and different Races and different cultures and ethnicities come together and have harmony around our common faith in Christ. What other place can people from so many different backgrounds, so many different you know, sensibilities and cultural ideas and ethnicities come together and have harmony, but around Jesus? That's what the church is supposed to be. And the culture has no rival for that. The third thing I want us to see is that the vision requires mobilization. In chapter four and six, Nehemiah says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. The fourth chapter of Nehemiah points out that the Jewish people rebuilt the wall 
section by section, little, in other words, little by little. It didn't happen overnight. They tackled 40 sections and worked simultaneously. Each little group in each part of the city doing their part. And their vision motivated and mobilized them to complete this great task. So my question to us this morning is, what wall is God asking us to build? If you know the story of Nehemiah, you know that people were angry about it. There were residents in the city of Jerusalem, the non-Jews, who were not happy about it. And they resisted them, such to the point that Nehemiah and those building the wall had a trowel in one hand, you know, you're putting, laying down mortar and brick, and a sword in the other. You know, can you imagine that? You've got so many enemies around you that you've got to hold a sword in one hand while you're working with the other. And God has called us to that, too. Half of our life is trowel work. We're building, we're doing the necessary work to live, to build up God's kingdom, and the other half of the calling God has given us is sword work, to defend and to fight the encroaching forces that would tear apart the kingdom. God is calling us to build something. Now we believe with all our hearts that we're a true church that faithfully preaches the word and rightfully administers the sacraments, and that's important. Uh, And there are some things that our session during our retreat recognize that we can be better at. You know, part of our longstanding mission to share the love of God with the life of our community by reaching out and reaching in and reaching up, we know we can improve. There are certain aspects of that that we don't do as well as we could. So here's just a couple things. This is just a preview of next week, what we're going to talk about in depth. These are just some big pointers, okay? We want to be better at engaging our community. And that means not just traditional outreach, but dedicating resources. And part of that is online engagement for the 21st century. Um, We talk a lot about how Online is now the new lobby of the church. If people were curious about a church before, they would visit and look look at what's in the lobby before they came into the service. Now that happens online. So we want to be better at engaging our community. That's not the only way, but that's one huge way. We want to increase our reach. We believe that God is calling Highlands Church to have a reputation in the community in a way that we never have had before to be involved and make a difference in local matters where people are hurting and in need. The next is a really big one. We wanna create a culture of discipleship. This is something we've actually already started and we don't broadcast it um, a whole lot. It sort of happens privately. We've got a couple discipleship groups right now. These are different than connect groups. It's high commitment and it's, it's a one-year curriculum and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of life-on-life life discipleship. We want that to spread through our whole church, and we want that to spread in our community. It's a, it's a slow-moving fire, but we want it to burn through this church and community. We want to create a 
culture discipleship to create mature and equipped believers, not just people who give lip service to their faith, but people who are on fire for Christ. And we also determined that we want to support gospel initiatives, and that means not just partnering with sort of foreign missions, but also things that God is doing right here in our city. And some of it may be right here in West County, and some of it may be in the inner city, but, but these are ways that we want, that we believe God is calling us to, to build the wall. God is calling us to meet the need. And we want to increase our attendance significantly in 2022. These are just some things that we believe will support that. But next week we'll unpack how we're gonna do this, what it's gonna take to accomplish it. We'll talk in depth. I'll, I'll preach a, a shortened um, sermon and then we'll have the finance committee come up and we'll sort of tag team the vision in greater detail and talk about it in depth. So. This is what God has given us. And um, it's, it's gonna take radical measures, I think. Now some of it is not um, reinventing the wheel, but being intentional and deliberate to be faithful and constant in a culture that is constantly changing. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We look at the story of Nehemiah and we can perceive the trouble he felt as he identified the problem and the need. Lord, we ask that you would give us that kind of burden, the kind of burden that so desires to see things change that we cannot just sit still that we would have such a vision for how the gospel can change our society that we would do anything necessary to make it happen. Lord, put that fire in our hearts, oh God, today. That we wouldn't just sit around and complain about what's going on, but that we would do something, that we would take up the call that you have given us in the gospel. Help us to make Jesus famous, Lord, we pray. Empower us by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen.